welcome to Talking Shit About with me, Elizabeth, and we are talking shit about the siege at Ruby Ridge with my fiancé, Gil. Howdy, howdy. We are on part four of this series, and that means we're at the end, finally. I'm not doing a research series, at least for a long time, because it was brutal. I was going to read everything ahead of time and then do the podcast, but then I accidentally deleted all of my research, so I was like, fuck that. I'm just going to read it in chunks and do it that way, and that was a mistake, so... Next time, if there's a next time, I'm noted, making a note of that. Uh, next episode is going to be an interview again with a returning guest, and I'm very excited. It'll be lighthearted and fun, and I'm actually going to see if I can snag another guest. But yes, we're going to go back to our reg- regularly scheduled programming, but I did really want to do this series from the beginning, so it's here. It's happening. It's almost done. So... This episode, by the way, if this is your first episode of the series, go listen to parts one, two, and three. And then if this is your first episode ever, go listen to some other episode, unless you're just interested in Ruby Ridge. But then again, go to episode one first. Okay, that's out of the way. Um, I don't, general content warning. I feel like if you're in this far, you know we're already past all the gory stuff. This is just going to be. The trial and the Senate hearings and just a wrap-up. So, nothing too crazy. Well, <laughs> it's crazy, <laughs> but not that kind of crazy. Um, so, last episode, we ended at the end of the siege. The family is off of the mountain. Vicki Weaver is dead. Sammy Weaver is dead. Kevin and Randy are wounded. Um, one federal agent, or one U.S. Marshal is dead. Yes. And the rest of the kids are scarred for life. Yep, yep. They're traumatized. Right now, off the mountain. For the upcoming trial, Kevin Harris was represented by Dave Nevin and Ellison Matthews, and Randy Weaver by Jerry Spence and Jerry's son Kent, as well as Jerry's assistant and right-hand gal, uh, Jean Bontadelli. Um, Spence paid a visit to Randy during his first night in jail. The first thing he said to Weaver was this. My name is Jerry Spence. I'm the lawyer you've been told about. Before we begin to talk, I want you to understand that I do not share any of your political or religious beliefs. Many of my dearest friends are Jews. My daughter is married to a Jew. My sister is married to a black man. She has adopted a black child. I deplore what the Nazis stand for. If I defend you, I will not defend your political beliefs or your religious beliefs. But your right as an American citizen to a fair trial. To which Randy replied, that is all I ask. The men shook hands, talked, and Spence agreed to look into his case. After agreeing to represent Randy, Spence got a lot of backlash. I think this letter he wrote in response to Alan Hirschfield, former chairman of Chief Executive Officer of Columbia Pictures and 20th Century Fox, who had asked Spence to withdraw, really encapsulates the whole reason I wanted to cover this episode. Here's what Spence wrote to Hirschfield. Sorry, but it's a long quote. Are you ready for this? Do you want me to read that? It's pretty long. Okay. Randy Weaver's principal crime against the government had been his failure to appear in court on a charge of possessing illegal firearms. The first crime was not his. He had been entrapped, intentionally, systematically, patiently, purposefully entrapped, by a federal agent who solicited him to cut off, contrary to federal law, the barrels of a couple of shotguns. Randy Weaver never owned an illegal weapon in his life. He was not engaged in the manufacture of illegal weapons. 
The idea of selling an illegal firearm had never entered his mind until the government agent suggested it and encouraged him to act illegally. The government knew he needed the money. He is as poor as an empty cupboard. He had three daughters, a son, and a wife to support. He lived in a small house in the woods without electricity or running water. Although he is a small, frail man with tiny, delicate hands, <laughs> uh, who probably weighs no more than 120 pounds, he made an honest living by chopping firewood and by seasonal work as a logger. This man is wrong. His beliefs are wrong. His relationship to mankind is wrong. He was perhaps legally wrong when he failed to appear and defend himself in court, but the first wrong was not his, nor was the first wrong the government's. The first wrong was ours. In this country, we embrace the myth that we are still a democracy when we know that we are not a democracy, that we are not free, that the government does not serve us but sub subjugates us. Although we give lip service to the notion of freedom, we know the government is no longer the servant of the people, but at last has become the people's master. We have stood by like timid sheep while the wolf killed, first the weak, then the strays, then those on the outer edges of the flock, until at last the entire flock belonged to the wolf. We did not care about the weak or about the strays. They were not a part of the flock. We did not care about those on the outer edges. They had chosen to be there. But as the wolf worked it, its way towards the center of the flock, we discovered that we were now on the outer edges. Now we must look at the wolf squarely in the eye. That we did not do so when the first of us was ripped up and torn and eaten was the first wrong. It was our wrong. That none of us felt responsible for having lost our freedom has been a part of an insidious progression. In the beginning, the attention of the flock was directed not to the marauding wolf, but to our own deviant members within the flock. We rejoiced as the wolf destroyed them, for they were our enemies. We were told that the weak lay under the rocks while we faced the blizzards to wrestle our food, and we did not care when the wolf took them. We argued that they deserved it. When one of our flock faced the wolf alone, it was always eaten. Each of us was afraid of the wolf, but as a flock we were not afraid. Indeed, the wolf cleansed the herd by destroying the weak and dismembering the ab aberrant element within. As time went by, strangely, the herd felt more secure under the rule of the wolf. It believed that by belonging to the... This wolf over here... Yeah, Marty, I know we're talking about wolves, but you mind? It believed that by belonging to this wolf, it would remain safe from all other wolves. But we were eaten just the same. When Randy Weaver failed to appear in court because he had lost his trust in the government, we witnessed the fruit of our crime. The government indeed had no intent to protect his rights. The government had but one purpose, as it remains today, the disengagement of this citizen from society. Alan, I agree with your arguments. They are proper and they are true. I agree that my defense of Randy Weaver may attach a legitimacy and dignity to his politics and religion, but it may as well stand for the proposition that there are those who don't condone this kind of criminal action by our government. I view the defense of Randy Weaver's case as an opportunity to address a more vital issue, one that transcends a white separatist movement or notions of the supremacy of one race over another. For the ultimate enemy of any people is not the angry hate groups that fester within, but a government itself that has lost its respect for the individual. The ultimate enemy of democracy is not the drug dealer or the crooked politician or the crazed skinhead. The ultimate enemy is the new king that has become so powerful it can murder its own citizens with impunity. To the same extent that Randy Weaver cannot find justice in this country, we will be deprived of justice. At last, my defense of Randy Weaver is a defense of every Jew and every Gentile, for every black and every gay who loves freedom and deplores tyranny. Great work. Randy and Kevin would be tried together in the spring of 1993, and for the next seven months, the men were held at Ada County Jail in Boise. They were frequently moved to different cells, sometimes multiple times a day. It could be a security measure, but Randy believed it was a harassment tactic. 
Kevin and Randy were in jail for seven months leading up to their court date and weren't allowed to speak to each other throughout that time. The prosecuting attorneys were Kim Lindquist and Ron Howen, who had battled with the Aryan Nations before. Howen wrote up a 16-page indictment, which included 10 separate charges. I thought you were going to sneeze. <laughs> One, conspiracy to provoke a confrontation, sawing off a shotgun, failing to appear for court, assaulting and impeding deputy marshals, killing William Deegan, intimidating or impeding an FBI helicopter, harboring a fugitive, Randy Weaver, possessing guns and ammunition as a fugitive, violating terms of release, and carrying a firearm in commission of a crime. In November of 1992, Maurice Ellsworth, the U.S. Attorney for Idaho, requested permission from the Justice Department to seek the death penalty, but the judge in the case ruled in February 1993 that the death penalty didn't apply. Prosecutors requested documents from the FBI, but they failed to release many of them, and it was determined that some of the reports had been treaded to, con to conceal evidence. Some of the missing documents include the incident report about Horiuchi shots, that's who shot Vicky and Kevin and Randy. I guess you shot everybody. Um, except for Sam. <laughs> except for Sam. Um, the review of the shooting incident report, the operations plan, and the FBI's critique of the U.S. Marshal Service. In addition, the FBI laboratory stalled and deflected prosecutors, even allowing some blood samples to spoil. Prosecutors weren't the only ones butting heads with the FBI. The Marshal Service was going back and forth with the agency, shifting blame about the case. Leading up to the trial, Gene Glenn's assistant, Dave Tubbs, was defeating Spence's press releases in regard to the government killing Vicky, saying, quote, I can tell you we don't shoot mothers with babies in their arms. So, obviously, if a shooting occurred that resulted in the death of Vicky Weaver, something happened to precipitate that shooting. We don't go around killing people unless there's good reason. Mm -hmm. The Weaver-Harris trial began on Wednesday, April 14, 1993, at the federal courtroom of U.S. District Judge Edward J. Lodge in Boise, Idaho. Each day of the trial, a large convoy, complete with SWAT teams, would escort the men to court. The first witness to the prosecution was U.S. Marshal Larry Cooper, who gave conflicting testimony. He justified that Kevin shot first and that he never shot at Sam. Ballistic experts said that it was Cooper's bullet that killed Sam. It was also clear from Cooper's testimony that they had planned to, to shoot Stryker all along. Next on the stand was informant Kenneth Fadley, a.k.a. Gus. The jurors listened to his recorded conversations with Randy, proving Randy's racist beliefs to the jury and his involvement with legal firearms. In a win for the defense team, however, it was revealed that Fadley would receive payment for a conviction, meaning he had every reason to lie on the stand. Woof. On the fifth day of the trial, April 19, 1992, jurors were instructed to ignore the siege playing out in Waco, Texas, where a Branch Davidian quote-unquote compound was being burnt to the ground. In fact, many of the key players in the Ruby Ridge incident were involved in the events at Mount Carmel, including Richard Dick Rogers, the man in charge of the hostage rescue team, and one of the two men who rewrote the rules of engagement. Fuck. And I think Horiuchi was as well. I think you're right on that. Um, Good do God. I feel like there's enough stuff about Waco out there that we don't really need to get yeah, into it. Yeah, no, it's just the the feds taking L's <laughs> just left left and right in the early '90s. Yeah, but so many parallels between the two. Oh yeah, like it's. Yeah. I think we talked about it in the first episode too. Oh yeah, God, I should I should have listened to those before I did this. Hindsight 2020. Um, ATF agent Herb Byerly was next on deck, where he denied Fadley's financial incentive for the conviction. 
and testified to Randy's violation of the law. Byerly was followed by two more ATF agents, as well as those involved with his failed court appearance, who collectively admitted that they fucked up. Like, everyone's like, oh, yeah, I sent him the wrong date, my bad. And this person's like, oh, yeah, I sent him the wrong date, my bad. And it's just like, yep, we knew this. U.S. Attorney Maurice Ellsworth testified about Vicky's Queen of Babylon letters, going back and forth with Spence on whether or not it's a First Amendment issue or a viable threat. By May, the judge ruled that so far he saw no conspiracy by anyone. I'm not going to go over every witness and their testimonies because the Weaver, against the Weavers because the prosecution had 54 witnesses. If you want to know more, go read Jess Walter's book. Spence complained to the judge that the jury was being spoiled by repetitive testimony, but on May 18th, Judge Lodge told Spence, To date, about 75% of the witnesses called by the government have been favorable to the defense. Yep. <laughs> Next, the prosecution attempted to pull a stunt by laying out all of the Weaver's firearms. Six pistols, six rifles, two shotguns, and 4,500 rounds of ammunition. They also played... <laughs> You're chuckling. They also played surveillance footage of the Weavers walking around armed on their property. The thing about Idahoans, though, is that they love their guns. When asked if they owned firearms, nearly every hand in the jury went up. That being said, some jurors were bothered to see Sarah and Sam armed. Just before Memorial Day weekend, it was revealed that the prosecution had withheld a critical interview Howen had with David Neal, a member of the Idaho State Police Critical Response Team, one of the men who had brought the deputy marshals and Deegan's body down from the mountain. In the interview, Neil stated that Roderick claimed to have shot the dog, thereby, thereby proving the series of events at the Y as told by the Weavers. It was debated whether or not to put Sarah on the stand, but after listening to some of her beliefs on race, definitely handed down from her parents, the defense decided she was too damn honest for the stand. And that being said, later on and afterwards, she would go on to, like, mingle with other kids like it's so like back and forth and back and forth and it's like so complicated and she's like tried to i'm going off on a tangent now but she's like tries to like distance herself from like all of that as she like gets older but anyway so that's that's something else for later speaking of honesty on the stand though u.s marshal art roderick was up next Roderick repeatedly claimed to have heard a shot before he shot Stryker, who again was running away from the marshals. He also de denied telling David Neal that he shot first. Deputy Marshal Frank Norris, who I mentioned in the last episode, was next to testify, essentially saying he heard the sound of an agent's 223 go off first. It was revealed with more witness testimony and evidence had been hidden or misplaced, including a bullet that had most definitely been planted by the FBI to place Sarah at the events of the Y with her 223. If you, again, if you want more information on that, you can go look in the book. But yeah, it's fact. Associate Director for Operations of the U.S. Marshals Service, Duke Smith, also testified. Smith had been with Richard Rogers when the rules of engagement were revised, and it was also in the helicopter that Lon Horiuchi said he was protecting when he began shooting the Weavers. In his testimony, Smith admitted that the rules of engagement were written before talking to any of the men present on the mountain and that his helicopter had never really been in danger. Oh, and when I was going back and saying that, like, reading Randy's book first, I've been calling Lon Horiuchi Lou Horiuchi, but it's not. It's Lon. Um, so embarrassing. But Lon Horiuchi was up next. Um, and when he came in, they also brought in the cabin door with its curtains 
and all into the courtroom and we have a picture of it in front of us right now um, and you can see the glass and the bullet holes yeah and this kind of iconic picture Randy's staying next to it on the stand Horiuchi told the courtroom that he had shot Randy but was trying to kill Kevin and that when he killed Vicky he was again aiming for Kevin and perhaps more importantly he claimed he couldn't see who he was shooting through the windows or through the window of the door which contradicted his other claim that he saw Kevin flinch through the window. Because, as you'll see on the cabin door, there's curtains. And they're covering the window. And they are not see-through. And they are not see-through. Go look up that picture if you haven't seen it before. Once again, Prosecutor Howan would be dealing with the FBI's bullshit. After the final day of Horiuchi's testimony, Howan re- received a package from the FBI, postmarked May 21st, sent two weeks prior, fourth class. The package included interviews with FBI agents and a crude drawing by Horiuchi on a note, hotel notepad of just before taking the shot that killed Vicky. If you haven't seen it, again, go Google it. The drawing shows two heads visible through the window, despite Horiuchi's testimony saying he saw no one through the window. Judge Lodge was pissed when he found out and fined the government one day for the defense team's costs, even though they were working for free. Horiuchi was put back on the stand and the... He told the court he only drew the two heads in the window after an FBI agent asked him to draw where he thought Randy and Sarah were. At one point, Kent Spence discovered a previously unaccounted for bullet hole in Deacon's backpack, which showed that he had been shot at least once from behind. While it wasn't proof that Deacon was shot by another marshal, it did cast reasonable doubt. After 36 days of testimony, the prosecution rested its case. By the end of it, the case had taken its toll on Howen, both mentally and physically. During his closing argument, his hands shook, and he stopped mid-sentence, apologized to the judge, and said he couldn't continue, and sat down with his hands between his legs. Then Lodge, Lodge, oh my god, Judge Lodge called a recess. Lodge then dismissed two of the charges, being a felon in possession of a firearm and threatening to shoot at a helicopter. Yeah, you, I think that's a basic timeline thing, because if you haven't done your day in court, court you aren't technically a felon. <laughs> um, yeah. That's, that's pretty simple, actually. If you want insight into the jury's deliberation, again, go read Jess Walter's book. But what I will tell you is that after two weeks, they had to start all over after one juror had a mental breakdown and bounced. He's like, I'm going to go get some help, and then he just like, didn't, never came back. On July 8th, 1993, the jury announced their verdict. They had deliberated for 20 days, the longest in Idaho history. Kevin was found not guilty and was immediately released. Randy was also acquitted of all charges except the failure to appear in court. Randy received 18 months in jail, a $10,000 fine, and three years supervised probation, though he had served 14 months already and got 50 days off for good behavior, so he was released December 17, 1993. All of Randy's fines were paid off by donations from a Florida man. Florida man. Florida man. Thanks, Florida man. (laughs) While their father stood trial and served his time, Weaver's remaining children moved to Johnston, Iowa, to live with their aunt Julie, Vicky's sister, and Julie's husband, Keith, as well as their two daughters, Emily and Kelsey. There, Sarah and Rachel attended public school for the first time and were looked down upon not only for their financial status, Sarah described her fellow students as rich and snobby, but also for being related to Randy Weaver whose trial dominated the news. Despite the social tension, Sarah did well in school and bonded with one of her art teachers. After Randy was released in December of 1993, Rachel and Elisheba went with him to Grand Junction, Iowa, 
where Sarah stayed with Keith and Julie to finish out her senior year, but moved to be with her father and her sisters after graduating. Following the trial, the Department of Justice formed the Ruby Ridge Task Force to address allegations of cover-ups and released a 542-page report from the Department of Justice Office of Professional Responsibility on June 10, 1994, but it was not made public, though it was eventually leaked to the press. In the fall of 1994, Randy and Kevin filled filed civil suits against the government, charging them with the wrongful deaths of Sam and Vicki Weaver and for violating, violating their rights and property. Their claim totaled over $300 million. On January 6, 1995, FBI Director Louis, Louis, Louis J. Free announced 12 FBI employees were involved or disciplined. 12 FBI employees involved were disciplined or recommended for discipline, but they were all just slaps on the wrist. Glenn got the worst of it, being censured, suspended for 15 days, and re reassigned, and Horiyuchi got pretty much off scot-free. Later in the same year, the Senate Judiciary Committee would hold hearings in the, on the incidents at Ruby Ridge and Waco, Texas, involving allegations that multiple branches of the Departments of Justice and the Treasury engaged in serious criminal and professional misconduct. There were 14 days of hearings between September 6 and October 19, 1995, which included 62 witnesses, interviews, documents, inquiries to Attorney General, Secretary of the Treasury, Director of the ATF, Director of the U.S. Marshal Service, Director of the FBI, Director of the U.S. Attorney General for Idaho, and more. The committee had two goals. One, sift through information to reach conclusions on the events, and two, determine policy changes or reforms. I took the liberty of reading through the findings, so you'll be able to get some direct quotes from that. Randy spoke at the hearings, demanding justice for his family. I am here today to do it all in my power to see that all citizens, including law enforcement officers, obey the law. I'm here today because there must be accountability for the killings of my wife and son. When high-ranking FBI officials issue death warrants and cover up their involvement, the message they send to police officers all over the country is, it is okay if you can get away with it. Citizens who cannot trust their government band together in fear. If people in positions of power commit unlawful acts and are not held accountable, then citizens fear the government is justified. Lon Horiyuchi was called to testify at the hearings, but invoked his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. In regard to Horiyuchi shooting Vicky, the subcommittee concluded that, the second shot was inconsistent with the FBI's standard deadly force policy and was unconstitutional. Moreover, the subcommittee questions whether the second shot was justifiable even under the operative rules of engagement, which permitted deadly force, only if the shot can be taken without endangering any children. Horiuchi's second shot, which went through the cabin door and killed Vicki Weaver, missed the 10-month-old baby in her arms, Alicia Bud, by less than two feet. We fail to see any reasonable basis for a judgment that high-powered rifles shot through an opaque door into an area that could, not hold, that could hold a mother and several children, including an infant, could have been undertaken without endangering the children. In addition, he, sh he should have realized that Sarah had just run into the house and that there was a possible bottleneck at the doorway. The subcommittee, however, does not believe that Oriuchi saw Vicki Weaver or her baby behind the door, or that he knew that he they were there. On the basis of his trial testimony and the physical evidence, we do not believe that Horiuchi intentionally killed Vicki Weaver. The subcommittee concludes without reservation that the second shot should not have been taken. Horiuchi basically failed like one of the first rules of gun safety, which is be, be sure of your shot and beyond it, which is really frustrating. I mean, I'll, one of many frustrating things in this, but that's just like 101 
shooting safety. The FBI's shooting incident review team's review is a hot mess, including occasionally referring to Vicky as Vicky Harris instead of Vicky Weaver. The team argued that when Vicky held the door open for Kevin Harris, she was, quote, attempting to assist Kevin Harris in a hostile action. The findings also go on to say, And even more troubling is the team's conclusion that an innocent party who places herself in harm's way can be the subject of deadly force. That conclusion is frighteningly wrong. On Thursday, May 14, 1998, Lon Horiuchi's manslaughter charge on the murder of Vicki Weaver was dismissed on the Supremacy Clause. Here are some more highlights from the findings. You ready for some oh, reading? Shit. Do you want me to do that, or you got it? Can we do the more zoomy zooms? Yeah, we'll <laughs> zoom in here a little bit. How's that? That's good. Yeah. The ultimate responsibility for what transpired at Ruby Ridge must be shared by many people. Weaver recognizes his mistake, and in fact candidly acknowledged it to us and to the American people on the first day of our hearings. But while Randy Weaver made mistakes, so did every federal law enforcement agency involved in the Ruby Ridge incident. This country can can tolerate mistakes made by people like Randy Weaver, but we cannot accept serious errors made by federal law enforcement agencies that needlessly result in human tragedy. Randy Weaver and others have raised the issue of whether he was targeted for prosecution by ATF, not because of any criminal conduct, but because of his religious and political beliefs, specifically his affiliation with members of the Aryan nations. It is inappropriate for law enforcement agents to identify subjects for investigation or potential prosecution based on religious or political beliefs or affiliations, no matter how odious those beliefs may be. We believe that Weaver was targeted not so much for his beliefs, but for his association with violent people. Every agency involved with the Weaver case was careless at some level in the way that it handled information. As we have learned from what occurred at Ruby Ridge, the results of, the results of law enforcement reliance on inaccurate information can be devastating. In addition, the marshals came to accept a portrait of Randy Weaver and his family composed variously of fact, falsehood, misinterpretation, and exaggeration. Law enforcement cannot be strong when the public loses confidence in its integrity, its judgment, and its ability to act fairly, independently, and responsibly. The public lost some of that confidence as a result of the events at Ruby Ridge. By demanding public accountability for the mistakes that were made made there and informing the American public of policy changes and other reforms that have been instituted, we hope to prevent similar tragedies in the future. The FBI now only acted precipitously. It also stressed a tactical, tactical rather than a negotiated response to the problem. This is reflected in the operations plan that was faxed to FBI headquarters on the afternoon of August 22, 1992. The operations plan contained no negotiation option, and it contained shoot-on-site rules of engagement. The use of an HRT, hostage response team, robot with a shotgun further demonstrates how deeply flawed the HRT operation was. It should have come as no surprise to anyone that rather than aiding the negotiation process, this equipment frightened the weavers and slowed the negotiation process. The subcommittee agrees with Director Free that the use of the robot with a shotgun was the stupidest thing I ever heard of. The subcommittee notes (laughs) that no one has ever taken responsibility for this. According to the committee, the operations plan contained unconstitutional rules of engagement. Those rules provided, if any adult male in the compound is observed with a weapon prior to the surrender announcement, deadly force can and should be employed if the shot can be taken without endangering any children. They fucked that one up. If any adult in the compound is observed with a weapon after the surrender announcement is made and is not attempting to surrender, deadly force can and should be employed to neutralize the individual. They killed an unarmed person. If compromised by any animal or dog, that animal should be eliminated. I guess they followed that one, but that's a pretty fucked up one. 
Any subjects other than Randall, Randall Weaver, Vicki Weaver, Kevin Harris presenting threats of death or grievous bodily harm, the FBI rules of deadly force are in effect. Deadly force can be utilized to prevent the death or grievous bodily injury to oneself or that of another. These rules were inconsistent with the FBI standard deadly force policy, as that policy was in effect in August 1992. It provided agents are not to utilize deadly force against any person except as necessary in self-defense or for the defense of another when they have reason to believe that the they or another are in serious danger of death and grievous bodily harm. Rules of engagement cannot eliminate, uh, cannot eliminate constitutional rights with regard to certain suspects, even if they are particularly dangerous. The rules of engagement were in effect from the 22nd of August until the 26th of August, and yet, inexplicably, no one at headquarters admits to having been aware of what the rules were or having read them. The FBI did an absolutely terrible job at handling the aftermath. There were allegations and evidence of cover-ups, and they failed to provide documents in a timely manner, or in some cases, never submitted the documents at all, as well as friends reviewing friends within internal investigations. The subcommittee was also disappointed in the unwillingness of some high-ranking people in every agency to accept responsibility, to hold themselves accountable for their actions and those of their subordinates. In addition, the subcommittee questioned whether any of the agencies can fairly and objectively investigate and criticize itself in a case of this kind. All right, we're almost done. Here's just this final little tidbit that it's terrible and then I want to throw in. All right, well, yeah. So, at trial, the Weaver-Harris lawyers emphasized the fact that the Y area was not secured after the shooting incident and that many vehicles were permitted to drive through it before any search was conducted. Special Agent Mark Thundercloud commented that the dog striker who had been killed during the firefight had been run over by a government vehicle. Give them all the wall. <laughs> Uh, what's the... Satire. Satire. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. That was satire. It's, a, it's like a modest proposal. You know, it's... Satire. Yeah. Yeah. So, in essence, it was agreed that everybody fucked up, but there would really be no true justice for those responsible. The civil suit that the Weavers had filed against the government was settled in August of 1995, awarding the girls with $1 million each and 100000 going to Randy. Unfortunately, a term of the settlement meant that the government would, could refuse to acknowledge any wrongdoing on their part. In the spring of that same year, the Weavers sold their property to a friend of Kevin's. Eventually, Sarah moved to western Montana with her fiancé, Dave Cooper. Kevin got married, has some kids, and in December of 2000, he accepted a settlement of 38000 from the government. 380000 Yep, 380000 I have no idea what I said. From the government. <laughs> Randy eventually followed suit to Montana, where he lived out the rest of his life. Randy passed away on May 11th, 2022, at the age of 74. The same year the Weavers had sold their cabin, a federal building was blown up in Oklahoma City by Timothy McVeigh, killing 168 people, including 19 children. His actions were in retaliation for what had transpired at Ruby Ridge and Waco. The sieges may have ended, but the radicalization of young white men to the far right had only just begun. Yeah, fun fact about uh, Timothy McVeigh and Ruby Ridge and, and Waco, both the like viewing parking lot protest areas, he would, he was president at both of those at some point or another. Wow. Yeah, it's like magnets for those folks. <laughs> Especially pre-internet, you had to go get in the shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Just a, a weird, weird thing. He he was president of both. 
We could get into Waco, not Waco, into Oklahoma City and Elohim City and all the, all the shit like that. You know, in the aftermath of you know this and Waco, Timothy McVeigh was able to do what he did largely because the FBI was terrified of having another fuck up, um, in Elohim City, and decided inaction was better than another fuck up and. Oklahoma City happened because of that. They fucked up both ways. They just don't do things right. <laughs> Seems like they shouldn't exist. There are only two FBI agents that I trust, and their names are Mulder and, and Scully. Scully. <laughs> <laughs> and they're fictional TV characters. Yeah, and they're not real, which is too bad. Um, but I, aliens I are believe, real. I want to believe. Uh, but we want to believe that they're real. Maybe that's why they made the show, is to make you believe that it's, they're not real. They're like, oh, look at this fictional show. They're getting ahead of the game. So you that know, way, when a- you see aliens, you're like, oh, nice costume. Like, oh, yeah. nice prop. Someone called Mulder and Scully in here. <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> is that the end of it? Yeah, that's the end. Okay. You have any final, final thoughts? No, I think I I think I got to it. But, yeah, you know, I think you did The FBI's it. continued fuck-ups also caused Oklahoma City. <laughs> You heard it here, folks. <laughs> it's the FBI's fault. I mean, obviously McVeigh did it. But he didn't do it alone, and the feds let it happen. <laughs> All right, I think we're done here, folks. We'll see you the first Friday of... Let's see, this is March when this is coming out. First Friday of April with an interview. Back to interviews. Thank you for listening, and if you want to submit a show idea... Or if you want to come on the show, or if you want to send me a list of things you don't like, you can do that by emailing kilizabeth.pod at gmail.com. That's K-I-L-L-I-Z-A-B-E-T-H dot P-O-D at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks so much to my fiancé. No problem. Mm. Bye.